Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Rodney Barker, Professor of Government. I'm very pleased to welcome you all tonight to a lecture which has been assisted by the LSE Annual Fund. And, of course, I'm delighted to welcome David Owen, Lord Owen. The, the job of the chair is to be as brief as possible, but even if I went on at great length, I probably wouldn't tell you anything that you didn't know uh, about Lord Owen's um, very distinguished career. Um, he was, of course, Foreign Secretary at, at an even younger age than David Miliband, uh, a distinguished member of both the Wilson and Callaghan governments, leader of the SDP. He's now a crossbencher in the House of Lords and author of The Hubris Syndrome, Bush, Blair, and the Intoxication of Power, which is available, um, though don't go now, um, in the hall at the back of the lecture theatre. And Lord Owen tells me he will be happy to sign copies after the lecture. The procedure for this lecture is that um, we will run until approximately 8 o'clock. Um, we will aim to give you all time for questions. Well, not all of you. We will give time for questions at the end. Um, hopefully there will be a podcast of this evening's event in due course. Um, I have done my chairman's duty. Um, it's now my great pleasure to hand the floor to uh, Lord Owen. Your floor is yours. Well, the one thing the chairman didn't say, which might be a fact which is material, I was a medical doctor. I was a registrar in neurology and psychiatry and then went on to do research in the brain at St. Thomas' Hospital. But that was a very long time ago. When I first went into the House of Commons, if anybody was ill, the first person the police called was myself. I'm glad to say that now I'm the last person. <laughs> On the third call, when anybody else, any passing nurse or ambulance worker has offered their services or failed to offer their services, then I'm asked. So I, I put this out as a warning note like on a packet of cigarettes, be careful about my medical prescriptions. Nobody, even in my family now, accepts my medical prescriptions. That's passed on to my son. However, uh, I'm unashamed about this. I mean, I'm, I believe that my political career was enhanced by the fact that I was a doctor before, that I'd uh, held down a serious job which had nothing to do with politics, and it was a job which I could go to and really enjoyed any time in my political career and earn us probably more money. Uh, and it was perhaps uh, also a safeguard against uh, the fact that I had a very marginal seat. And uh, when the uh, elections used to come around, I used to start reading the BMJ, not the actual articles, but the jobs vacancy at the back. However, it was not necessary, but for 26 years it looked at various stages as if it might be very necessary. Well, firstly, uh, why write this book? I've actually been writing for about the last four or five years a book on illness in heads of government, uh, starting with President Theodore Roosevelt. And I'm enjoying myself learning the history which I wish I'd known more of uh, when I was a politician. And as I started to write this book, 
so the Iraq war was unfolding and I watched it all pretty carefully. Another um, warning notice, I supported the Iraq war and I don't want to go too much into it but I'm certainly happy to do so but my criticisms and my arguments should be very clearly understood against the basis that I believed it was right to take out Saddam Hussein. And if I may explain just one reason why. In uh, the summer of 1978, I was um, rung up urgently. I don't think I was in the Foreign Office at the time, physically. And I was told that a former Iraqi Prime Minister had been um, assassinated on the streets of London. And a few hours later arrived a a sort of intelligence brief. Nobody was in any doubt who was responsible for this, and it was a man called Saddam Hussein. At that time, he had yet to become president of Iraq. That happened a few months later. And I read the assessments of this man's character and all about this character. And I can honestly tell you, and I've read some pretty bad summaries of some fairly average villains in my time, but this one made even my eyes pop out. And I've never forgotten it, and I've watched this man. In my eyes, he's been a marked man for a long, long period of time. And I believe that we should never forget, even in the midst of the chaos in Iraq and all the tragedies which are continuing and I'm afraid will continue, that this character is responsible not just for genocide but for a really savage rule over a long period of time and the loss of many hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. So that's my warning. When I started in politics, uh, I became very interested in how decisions were made. And I wrote a book, rather bad book really, in retrospect, rather like a lot of my books, uh, and this was called The Politics of Defense, a rather grandiose title for somebody who'd only been Minister of the Navy for a couple of years. But nevertheless, it analyzed quite a lot of the defense decisions of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I was, I must say, quite alarmed on how some of these people made their decisions. I looked actually most favorably but even then I was critical of some aspects of it, which I'm perhaps now not quite so critical of, and that was Kennedy's handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which for people of my generation was the traumatic incident of our uh, early uh, 20-period life. And it really did feel as if in Khrushchev's very emotive phrase that the smell of burning hung in the air. But... More recently, I've gone over Kennedy's presidency in some very considerable detail. Uh, I don't want to go on in about it here, but it's very interesting, and his medical history is utterly fascinating. His medical condition, as you, some of you know, is Addison's disease, which is a, affects the adrenal gland, which lies on top of the kidneys, and produces most of the really all-important hormones that the body needs. You can't survive with serious Addison's disease without replacement therapy, and that means cortisone and uh, other, other drugs as well. But what was clear about Kennedy is, firstly, he lied about his health. That, I'm afraid, is half the course. Practically all 
presidents and prime ministers who've been ill have lied to their electorate about their illness. Perhaps the first uh, senior political leader to be honest about his health was Eisenhower, who, when he had a very serious heart attack in Denver, Colorado, was content to go into hospital, stay in hospital, have the uh, chief of staff run the country from the White House and told the American people quite bluntly he didn't think that they wanted to cripple in the White House and they wanted him to get better before he would return. A very healthy uh, attitude to take. Uh, would that it had been followed since. But I think that the other thing that Kennedy showed is that he not only had lied to the people about his illness, but he'd lied to himself, which is in a way more damaging. And he had had compartmentalized his life and compartmentalized his medical advice. So he was having medical treatment from different parts of his body by different people, none of whom knew what the other one was doing. On top of that, he was in the hands of a charlatan, a person nicknamed Dr. Feelgood, who was um, one of those people who can be found in the big cities of the world, uh, providing for uh, young, not virile young men who want to be more virile than they are, uh, extra drugs to increase their capacity to work all through the 24 hours of the day, uh, to increase their sexual appetite and all other forms of appetite. Now, what this unfortunately revealed in my view is that during the Bay of Pigs crisis, which was common consent, Kennedy's worst presidential decisions. He was out of control in his drug therapy, out of control from any serious uh, medical doctor. And fortunately for the world, they began to take control of his uh, medication. And he came under the spell of a very remarkable uh, Austrian rock climber who uh, advised on the treatment for his back pain and got him into a more disciplined framework so that by the time the Cuban Missile Crisis came, he conducted himself massively different in, differently in the way he made the decisions. Now, in part, that was learning lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course. But it was more than that, in my view. His medical career, his medical medication was much more under control. He was taking less excitatory drugs like amphetamines. He was having less procaine being injected into him. He was having less uh, uncontrolled steroids and a whole range of things. Now, this is all by way of leading to the issue of the intoxication of power. Now, that is a phrase which I think was first used, but like all phrases, they usually have even earlier antecedents, by Bertrand Russell. And I think that... Uh, We've all known, and nobody who's close to politics is unaware of the fact that politicians are susceptible to a number of what I've always called political diseases. And one of them is paranoia, and the other is megalomania. Now, secondly, I, I, I don't think I'm paranoid, but I think that there have definitely been times when I've been accused of megalomania, and it may be it is some truth in it. In fact, I was accused of it by one of my best friends, a... Uh, political journalist on The Guardian, who some of you in the audience are old enough to remember, he sadly died now, Peter Jenkins. And um, it was near the, uh, it was when the SDP was collapsing and the liberal thing was going on. And the constraints which might have been on me in a, in a cohesive party perhaps were loosened. But it was also because he actually disagreed with me. Now this is the problem. 
of hubris and mania and everything like that is that it's so easy to accuse a politician of this when you disagree with them. Now, at least my qualification I've already made clear to you, I supported the Iraq war. Therefore, I didn't uh, come to the issue of Blair and Bush's handling of the Iraq war from a preconceived position that the whole thing was a a terrible error, we should never have done it, it was illegal, and all these other arguments, most of which I think are false. I'm ready to answer questions on any of this stuff if it comes in. So, uh, as I was writing this book, and as I come to the conclusion that my political hero, which was Lloyd George, took me a little time to realize this, had what I call hubris syndrome. Um, And then I'd actually lived through the last few years in fair close proximity. I mean, you know, between you and me, across the House of Commons where Margaret Thatcher would have been, and I was on the opposite side. Um, She undoubtedly, in my view, had hubris syndrome in the last two years of her prime ministership. I began to look rather carefully at Blair and Bush, just very quickly on Lloyd George. As I say, he's my political hero. I think he was a fine prime minister from 1916 to 1919. Interestingly, when he formed a war cabinet, he was the only liberal in it, and he was corralled. He he corralled himself, actually, with uh, conservatives and others who might disagree with him. And he had a very interesting relationship with the conservative leader, who was also Chancellor of the Exchequer, And he would go across from number 10 through the corridor into number 11 and talk with him every day and discuss the day's business. But from 1919, he was out of that control mechanism. He no longer really had a political party. And he slowly became, in my view, gripped by hubris, traveled around the world, was the great hero of the Paris Treaty, and began to ignore cabinet government actually began to devalue the House of Commons, which was very odd for a person who was really a very successful um, political player. And I think this is very well mapped out in a quite remarkable book by Lord Beaverbrook, written some years later, about uh, what happened to um, Lloyd George in 1921 and 1922. Margaret Thatcher, well, she's pretty well documented. I don't think I need to go into it all. I'll argue it if you wish to me to. But I think that on the issue of Europe... Now, again, I mean, at one stage in my political career, um, Dennis Healy called me Mrs. Thatcher in trousers. So I have a... There is no doubt in my career there are elements of the Thatcherite agenda which I agree with, not least the necessity by the late 70s, early 80s, to put a market economy much higher in the list of priorities for this country because we were simply failing to earn our living in the markets of the world. But, of course, I disagree with that passionately on things like the National Health Service and on many other aspects of social policy. But, nevertheless, I did actually agree with her, broadly speaking, on Europe. So on the issue on which she got completely out of control, began to ignore everybody, took no advice on any aspect of it, which was Europe, and its uh, federal and progressive integration. I, again, had sympathy with her, but I, I could see, you know, she was landing herself into an appalling mess. And, of course, she, like Lloyd George, effectively lost her party, and she was thrown out by her party. It was a classical example, if you like, of parliamentary democracy actually working. Uh, the cabinet didn't have the guts to get rid of her, but the parliamentary party did, and they did to dismiss a three-time political leader. 
Well, of course, the same thing has happened a three-time election winner. The same thing has happened to Tony Blair. He spent nine months trying to pretend with his legacy and everything else he hadn't been sacked by his party, but that is effectively what had happened. He'd been told that he had to give them an, uh, a date whereby he would not be any longer prime minister, and it was that he wouldn't be there at the next party conference. And it was wrung out of him like blood out of a stone, and he then pretended all the time that he wasn't bound by it. But he was bound by it, and he fortunately went. Now, what about hubris and Tony Blair and the uh, Iraq. This is such a complicated question. Forgive me if I'm, I really deal in headline terms. I saw Blair, and uh, he wasn't seeing me uh, because of the color of my eyes or uh, my suit or anything else. It was, he wanted to bring me into his tent. So it was a political meeting, uh, although it was over dinner, so I don't feel too um, upset about uh, Revealing it, and anyhow, it's certainly not a medical, confidential, uh, surgical uh, uh, visit. And I then, so I saw him in December 1998. And it, I'd seen him before, uh, but never in such close proximity and over such a period of time. And I openly tell you, I don't think there was much hubris about his character at that particular stage. And he was good company, and it was enjoyable discussion. But he was a little short of information on essential points, which is a note I had noticed when I first saw him in uh, 1996 when he was trying to persuade me to rejoin the Labour Party, when I discovered that his enthusiasm for the euro bordered, in my view, on the naive. So, but it was, a, as far as I was concerned, I was dealing with nobody suffering remotely from megalomania in December 1998. I saw him again in exactly the same circumstances in uh, July uh, 2002. And I really tell you, he was as different from chalk from cheese. The agenda before us was exactly the same. The euro, his attempt to try and persuade me to drop my campaign against Britain joining the euro. No meeting of minds. The other subject on the agenda on both occasions was Iraq. Actually, the first time in December 1998, it was the third day of the US and British bombing of Iraq, which went on, you may remember, for about four days. And so it was inevitable that Iraq had been high on our list. And anyhow, it was the issue which I had been discussing with him normally in number 10 and corresponding on which he presumably asked me to come and have dinner with him and discuss. And so Iraq was on the agenda on both occasions. The way he dealt with the issues surrounding Iraq, and marginally also on the euro, but particularly on Iraq, was very, very different. And it was summed up by my wife in the car as we went home, using a term which is now pretty common to describe Tony Blair, but it was not really common in 2002, that he was messianic. And there's no question of doubt. We left knowing perfectly well that we were going to war with Iraq. Now, I was in favor of it, so there was no problem about that. But, in retrospect, I must say, I wish I had spent a little bit more time on the problems, but I did try. And the difficulties, after all, we had known how difficult it would be to go in and topple Saddam Hussein in 1990 and 1991. It was studied very extensively inside the British government under initially Thatcher and then under John Major and it was certainly studied very carefully by Bush Senior 
and Scowcroft and Colin Powell and um, Dick Cheney. And they didn't do it. And I'm not in favor of Professor Hindsight. I know he usually appears on these occasions, so I'll try and keep him in my pocket. But I support him not going into Baghdad. And in retrospect, I still think that Bush would have rendered himself in great difficulty if he'd broken faith with those Muslim countries that had supported the Grand Coalition of kicking Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And remember, you know, you had Egyptian forces, you had Jordanian forces, you had Saudi Arabia forces, and you had Syrian forces fighting in that broad-based, UN-based coalition. And uh, to go into Baghdad would have strained that massively. Now, we can all say in retrospect it was a mistake, and in retrospect it was a mistake, but it was a mistake of good intentions and reasonable assessment. Now, therefore, if you decided that now things had changed because of 9-11, and you could go into Saudi Arabia, I mean, go into um, Iraq, and you could risk toppling Saddam Hussein, you had a deep-seated obligation to work out exactly how you were going to do it. And Henry Kissinger uh, summarized it very well in 2002. He said, there's only one thing you've got to be very careful about. You must not go into Baghdad, and when there, ask yourself what you're going to do. You have to know what you're going to do before you get there. Now, this is such a simplistic statement of the obvious. The fact that we didn't do it in any particular raises very serious questions about the decision-making. And it's this on which I wish to concentrate, because it's no use making just general remarks about hubris. You know, hubris is around. We've all got this word which many people can argue about what it means. But in my terms, it means the following. The hubris syndrome, which I've had to analyze. I don't ascribe it to people who have got histories of depression. Because as you may remember, the old expression was manic depression, which was a syndrome which is now called bipolar disorder. It is very difficult to distinguish hubris from a manic phase of a manic depressive illness. And if you're making retrospective judgments and not as doctors but as looking at history, and it seems to me diff- too, too difficult to territory. So I've tried to take that out. So in my terms, hubris syndrome is a disease of leaders. Of course, it's business leaders. It's leaders in any walks of life. But I've confined it to studying, as far as I can, heads of government. And it does not come into office with them it comes during their period in office. And because of that single fact, I believe the medical profession owes it to themselves and to all of us to study very carefully why it should be triggered by a period in office. And it is my own personal opinion, and I say with all the qualifications I've already given you, that it may well be that the advances in neuroscience are such that we, and cognitive science, that we will discover there may be a physiological basis for it. But I don't know that. But I just pose that question. It comes then when you're in office. And its qualities are many and varied, but it, it, it is, above all, a supreme self-confidence. A self-confidence that tends to push aside objective advice a self-confidence that gives the impression to those who are closely involved with the decision-making, not necessarily those who are watching them on television, but those who are closely involved with the decision-making, that they're not listening to external advice. They know the answers, 
They often make their position very clear before they've even asked other people's opinion. And they are single-mindedly pursuing a policy which they are certain about. Now, that's my understanding of the hubris syndrome. I believe that Blair first began to show some signs of it in the Kosovo War. It is still very commonly believed that Kosovo War was won by NATO as a result of their bombing. Well, I have very serious doubts about that, to be frank about it. You can all go into that at a various stage. Uh, President Clinton was very reluctant to go into Kosovo. He was told by the military that it would all be over within, I think, initially 24 hours, and then later it was revised to 72 hours. Well, it took 80 days of bombing. And at the end of the, the, the agreement, which was made by Milosevic, as a result of diplomacy from Yeltsin and from Russia, and particularly former Prime Minister and former Chairman of Gazprom, Chernomerdin, in my view, was a political decision. The Serb army never accepted that they had been defeated in Kosovo, and there's no objective evidence in terms of tank numbers or in guns or anything like that that they suffered serious damage from it. And I think there is a serious problem that many people, and I would argue too to some extent, the same thing in 1995, uh, NATO attacks on, uh, in the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia, that the bombing was nowhere near as effective as actually the decision to move artillery on the ground and local radar around Sarajevo. But these are elements. But if you start by this misconception, war is easy. And that's what I think that Blair took away from it. Now, it's been said, of course, that he understood that you should use ground forces. I was attacked by General Guthrie, who was the Chief of Defence Staff in the Sunday Times for advocating the use of ground force with Henry Kissinger in the days before the Kosovo War even started. Very interesting example of the politicization of the military instead. But I think Blair came out of Kosovo believing that his own personal persuasion of Clinton to threaten ground forces was crucial. Well, it's certainly more likely than the air attacks. But I think that he began to feel that he was touched by a certain insight which others didn't have on this. And then it was reinforced by Sierra Leone, which was a very minor, but nevertheless quite successful British intervention. Uh, and then it came uh, to winning the second election, and then he made massive changes in the structure of government. Now, I came to LSE with uh, some other foreign secretaries, and we wrote a book about the changes of the number 10, the, the bringing into number 10 Downing Street of foreign policy and defense policy under the prime minister's thing. And that's very important. And it happened just before 9-11, in the summer of 9-11, without any form of objective analysis at all. So he was ripe for it. And then comes 9-11. And all Blair's instincts and flair, which are considerable for initiatives and for becoming a presidential prime minister came together in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Flew to America, lauded by the Americans, goes to Congress, comes back, makes a speech of hyperbolic quality at the Labour Party conference. We were with you to the first, we were with you to the last. Exactly quite our exit strategy from Basra, but nevertheless. And many people describe that, not least... Um, Lord Morgan, the biographer of Callaghan and of Lloyd George, who was in the hall at the time, 
described that uh, speech as an extremely hubristic speech. And from then on, he was off, uncontrolled, unconstrained. Parliament, long since pushed to the side. Cabinet, no consequence whatsoever. Ministry of Defense kept in that place. And he was the president. And there he is in uh, this picture on the front of this little book. There's Blair, you can't see him. But it's this swaggering talk walk that we used to see echoing George Bush as he came into these press conferences. And he was president, President Blair. Of course, it was much easier to do this because he was, in a way, a dual president. Uh, Brown was the president for domestic affairs and economic affairs, and Blair's territory was defense and foreign affairs, but with the allowing that he could come in and make initiatives and public relations initiatives in the domestic policy, as long as he didn't get too much into the figures or any of the substantive uh, treasury matters. Now, that meant that he had the apparatus all there, and I think that for the next, uh, from 9-11, for two and a half years, we had a president presidential powers in this country on foreign policy and defense policy. Yes, officials would occasionally come. At times, the chief of defense staff would come. They would listen to, but Blair knew what he was going to do, and he'd already squared it through his private secretaries uh, with the um, uh, Bush's uh, staff in the White House, and that's where the key decisions were made. Now, of course, a lot of people want to blame um, Rumsfeld, or even Cheney. Well, Rumsfeld and Cheney knew exactly what they were going to do once they got into Baghdad. They were going to pass it on to their favorite Iraqi, Mr. Chalabi, and he was going to then make all the decisions. They were going to pull the American troops out and leave the Iraqis to solve the problem. Now, that was a solution. I personally don't think it was the right one, but a bloody sight better than no policy at all. And this is the real problem. Because Blair and Bush, for some reason, were absolutely obsessed about the fact that we were going to be seen as liberators, they couldn't see any real reason for having a policy. And so there was no policy. Now we gather from David Manning, who's a distinguished diplomat, who is in number 10 with Blair, and now is just retiring as uh, our ambassador, or retired as our ambassador in Washington. He now tells us that they didn't know that the Pentagon was going to run this. Well, all I can say is he must be one of the very few people in Washington who were unaware of this. It was perfectly clear that well before the actual day that we went into Iraq, that control of the operation post-war had passed from any remote hope that the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, might have to Rumsfeld and to the Pentagon. And I think then you've got to look at a very number of serious things. I'm not going to go all through them. I've tried to relate Blair's state of mind, the sort of decisions he was taking, to what was actually happening at the time. But just to summarize just a few of them. Firstly, before we actually went to war, this pursuit of the second resolution in the UN was crazy. I mean, anybody could have done their arithmetic to know that France, when it said that it had the votes, had a very good chance of being right. And we were telling France that three of their French colonies, they, we knew more about how they were going to vote than France did. Well, that was not very wise, to say the least. 
And one of the things that you immediately notice is that the Foreign Office UN Department, which used to exist to advise the Foreign Secretary and through the Foreign Secretary of the Cabinet how to vote in the UN, was obviously not functioning at all. Blair was ringing up our permanent representative in the UN five times a day, demanding he goes in to see Kofi Annan five times a day. All this time he was controlling this whole complex question of how the votes were likely to be cast in the Security Council. Why is it complex? Because they don't put in many of these countries, their loyal servant in uh, New York. It's a prized place, big salary, big expense account, and it's a place you usually put your political enemies where you want to pack them off and have nothing to do with it. And it's well known that what they're saying in New York, in many countries, matters not a whit. What matters is what the president or prime minister is saying back in the capitals. And that's why you have to have diplomats. You have to feed in all these different things to form a good judgment about where they're likely to be picking up their hand in the Security Council. I could go on, but it was madness, the second resolution. Also, at this time, the French made an offer to the Americans and effectively, therefore, to the British that they would actually acquiesce in this war provided they didn't put a second resolution on the table. And what the French said is, okay, you do your war, we'll do it on the resolution that we passed back in November, 1441, and we will not cause trouble. We're not going to vote for you, but we're not going to cause trouble, we're not going to vote against. You can get your resolution through, we'll abstain, we're pretty sure we can get the Russians to do that, and the Chinese will probably do the same, and there it is. We're not going to create trouble for you. And that was just spurned. And above all, who spurned it most of all was Blair. A fundamental error. Now then the error comes to a few others. We then have, perhaps I've left Bush to one side, but I mean, if you want an example of hubris set large, may I remind you of Bush flying in in a plane onto an aircraft carrier, conveniently sailing off the, the Straits of California, not in the Iraq, uh, Iran, but California, in this sort of bogus flight uniform. And remember on this uh, forecastle of the uh, aircraft carrier, mission accomplished. This was early May 2003. And even Rumsfeld, another sign that he's too cynical to be uh, uh, hubristic in that sense, had said to the president, don't use the word mission accomplished. But even so, Bush claimed total victory. A few weeks later, Sawyers, uh, Ambassador Sawyers, who's now in the UN, was ambassador in Egypt, had been in Tony Blair's private office as his private secretary, so he knew him very well, sent a most damning message about what was happening in Baghdad, that the arrangements for the aftermath were absolutely chaotic. Nobody was in control. Nobody was responsible. They remember all that looting and everything like nobody was doing anything about it. It was a most dire message. And he said, we've got a brigade here, which we should, British brigade here, which we should keep and bring to Baghdad and try and help restore law and order. We never to this day knows what happened to that memo. It obviously went to the Prime Minister. We don't know whether the problem was the Ministry of Defence. We do know that at that time, Jackson, the general, not the Chief of Defence Staff, but the Army General, had been in Baghdad and had known about this memo and agreed with it, basically. Nothing was done. And from that moment on, you're asking yourself, this is not normal incompetence. This, in my view, is a new form of incompetence. Or not new form, a form of incompetence that I call hubristic incompetence. And we have to analyze it, and we have to try to understand how this happened. 
How was it possible that none of the serious press was prepared to take up, and by then I tumbled what was happening, the arguments about the number 10 taking over the power structures of foreign and defense policy? Why was it no diplomats resigned or really said of serious, you know, head diplomats? Why did the Ministry of Defense let this acquiesce in this and let this go by? How could this happen right in our midst? And it's no use calling him mad, which some people want to do. I don't know. I don't use that term. Because it's very hard to pick this, this syndrome up. They look perfectly normal, perfectly reasonable. You're seeing them every day. But I've talked to a lot of people who were around Blair at that time. And it's amazing how many of them tell you that what I'm saying about this fits the picture. That it had changed. He was a different person to deal with during this time. And Bush, I think very much the same thing happened. And, of course, these two also worked on each other, helped greatly by this uh, religious fervor, which they hope and believe. They not only were certain, their God, who they talked to rather than he talked to them, uh, also was telling them that this was right. A very powerful reinforcing factor, you know, if this becomes a moral crusade as well as a political crusade. And I think that, as I say, we can then go on and argue about when it could have been changed, could it ever have been changed, would extra troops have made all the difference. I respect those people who say the whole thing was flawed, it was always doomed. I don't believe it myself, but you've got a hell of a lot on your side to argue, and I've got rather thin gruel to provide as a counter to it. But I want to focus just on this particular thing, and I know you want to ask questions, so I've spoken for half an hour and I'll ask, answer questions as long as you like. But that's really what this book is an attempt to be. It's very modest. Um, my publisher said, look, David, this book on um, illness and heads of government, very good book, but uh, it'll all be lost, all this chapter on hubris, by when you publish it next year in 08. Why don't you just let me publish this now when people are all interested in this? And I agreed to do it, and I think he was right to do it. So that's its origin. It basically is a chapter in a much larger book. And uh, it's brought it out, and I want to debate, and I want psychiatrists and neurologists and the medical profession to disagree with me and argue about it. I'm not claiming that it's uh, setting concrete any of these views and political scientists to, to have a go at it, but I'm determined that people face this issue. I, I've got too close to this issue in my own practical day-to-day decision-making as a government minister and watching very close quarters, as you do as Foreign Secretary, uh, the way governments and heads of governments in particular make decisions. And I think this needs to be addressed, this issue. Okay? So questions? of self-respect you, you state intoxication of power power in physical terms it might sound abstract is the rate of change of energy my question is what fuels this megalomania what fuels this beha- behavior stemming from leaders well we don't know but if you if you look at how often hubris is particularly now it's a rather fashionable word and books have been written about Iraq called hubris um, one of the words that keeps coming up is adrenaline. Pumped up with adrenaline, they say. Now, 
I used to, my initial research when I was a doctor was on beta blockers, adrenergic beta blockers. I don't think it's, adrenaline has this central effect on the nervous system, but it does have an effect, and there's a much more interesting area of dopamine and serotonin and the, these, the interface of these uh, substances which we now know are present in that part of the brain which makes many of these decisions. And I think that's around where we're going to go. I mean, and when you look at Bush, there's some pathology. You know, Bush lied about the fact that he had a history of his late 30s, early 40s of being an alcoholic. It wasn't just a little bit of alcohol. He was drinking heavily. Now, uh, alcoholism is a serious illness, and it's never one you can ignore, and it may well come back. And there's some people who believe it has come back instead. But also, there are relations between alcoholism and attention deficit disorder, where we know there is a pharmacological basis for attention deficit disorder. We used to think it was just an age, uh, a children's disease, but it's a lifetime illness, and it affects adults as well. And there are a whole range of syndromes which the medical profession have reluctantly come to accept. I say reluctant because they're not too keen on this. Narcissistic personality syndrome just being the most recent and they're all beginning to have some genetic linkage. They're also beginning to have a, a physiological and pharmacological basis for it. Now, I, as I say, this is real hypothesis, and I, I'm, I'm not wanting to go much further than to indicate I believe this should be looked at. And then there is the question of what drugs are they on. You know, we don't know. I mean, all we know is that Tony Blair has lied about his health. And, I mean, I, it's a tough thing for me to say. I don't believe in calling people liars easily. But, you know, when Blunkett writes that two, weeks after, two days after Blair had denied that he'd gone into hospital for anything that had been in the past, we have Blunkett saying in his diary, he told him that he'd been having this for some years, and many other aspects of that. I just don't understand why people, uh, in this day and age, with the exposure of the press and everything like that, but more than that, just an honest relationship with the electorate. Why is it necessary to lie about these things? It was not a particularly serious uh, heart problem, but it was a heart problem. It had to be dealt with. Let's hope it's been dealt with. But we don't know what drugs he's been on. We don't know uh, the, yet the full truth about what was happening about all of this. So it's impossible to tell. Uh, and I think that it, this is particularly bad in England and in Europe. I mean, Bush Sr., when he developed um, atrial fibrillation and was diagnosed as having hypothyroidism and had to be treated as, as, as president, the whole thing was there every day in the newspapers and everybody knew exactly what tests and how much thyroxine he had in his blood and a variety of different things like that. We've got to open this issue up. President Mitterrand, 11 years with cancer of the prostate, actually metastasized in the brain. And he tells his doctor, this is a state secret and you are not allowed to tell anybody. 11 years as president of France, being treated with highly toxic drugs. And I must admit, for quite a substantial period of that time, not really affecting, seemingly, his presidency. Uh, Chirac was lying about his health, just think. Charon was lying about his health. We used to think that in the modern age with the press vigilant and everything like that, I'm not so sure how vigilant they are, to be frank, but we used to think that they'd have to come clean. They'd have to be honest about it. And they haven't been. There's uh, somebody in the middle there. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, my name is Tracy Chovu, and in the light of what you just said, um, and as a brain researcher, what is the best way or the best therapy? Is it uh, taking a therapy or taking drugs in order to limit the Urbis syndrome? Look, I don't think we can go to therapy until we know whether or not there is a medical cause of it, and I'm, I'm I don't want you to leave with the belief that this is in any way other than a very... I believe there is a hubris syndrome, but whether or not there is a physiological or a neurochemical or even a genetic or biochemical basis for it, I think is really unproven. So until you know what it's likely to be its cause, you couldn't make sensible uh, talk about its, um, its treatment. So I think we have to leave it on its side. By and large, as I say, I mean, I've just taken democratic politicians. There's very little doubt that Hitler had hubris. People looked for years and years for some psychoanalytical explanation of Hitler. They've looked at all sorts of aspects of his medical illness and things. He did develop Parkinson's towards the end of his life. He was on a very strange old cocktail of drugs by 1943 and things like that. But in many respects, people who were close to Hitler in 1941 believed he was making rational decisions, but I think they were decisions, and certainly the ones around declaring war on Germany immediately on the, well, on the 11th of December after the Japanese had uh, attacked Pearl Harbor on the 7th. There's a very real evidence, I think, for hubris as being the basis for that decision. And indeed, Kershaw's very good two-volume biography of Hitler's first chapter, the first volume is Hubris and the second volume is Nemesis. We, we are building up a list now. There's a gentleman in a white shirt there and then there's a gentleman in a striped jumper here and then a gentleman in a purple shirt there and then a gentleman at the back with his hand in the air and glasses. So that's four, if like. We can start uh, there. You started off your half an hour of talking about what mistakes Kennedy did and then you moved on to Iraq. Your Lordship, my question is, what would you have done differently? I didn't spend very much time on what Kennedy did, and I said that I thought he'd handled the Cuban Missile Crisis extraordinarily well. Uh, the Bay of Pigs was an absolute disaster, and if you want to defend that, good luck to you. Um, and as far as Iraq is concerned, I devoted quite a bit of time to it, but I, I, I don't know really what you asked me to do. Uh, be specific, what, what you want to know about Iraq. What's well, I hope that I would have, from the moment that I felt that after Afghanistan, that it was sensible to use the readiness of the American people to go back in and redress the errors of 1991 and deal with uh, Saddam Hussein, I like to think I would have, first of all, been quite open about the main reason, and that was to topple him that he had taken absolutely no interest, uh, no regard whatever for the uh, disarmament agreement and peace treaty which he had signed in 1991 when he was defeated, and that if we are going to try and bring wars to an early end, and it was to the credit of President Bush Sr. and Colin Powell that they brought that Turkey shoot on the Basra Road to Baghdad to an end very quickly, and went, some people would say, almost prematurely, and you charged the UN with a peace treaty and a peace... Uh, military disengagement and uh, military disarmament and it is then not fulfilled by the pusillanimity of many of these uh, key states in the Security Council, particularly France 
Russia, and to some extent uh, Germany and Japan, um, let alone you know, the skullduggery of various British policies and American policies to Saddam Hussein over many, many years. I think you come back to the fundamental question about, um, you know, once you've decided to do it, you have to work through exactly how you're going to stabilize that country. You've got three elements which you know have, are at odds with each other. You know a minority has been governing the country since the 1930s with your consent against the majority, the Shia. That has to change, and power has to move to the majority. How do you contain that power with all the pent-up rancor and ill-feeling that they have for the minority? Surely that means that you have to not disband the Iraq army. Surely that means that debathification has to be done rather skillfully. You choose the biggest villains, but you try and keep, as we did in Germany, and as we've done in many other situations, we're doing now in Bosnia. I mean, if we want to have trials of every single person uh, on the Serbs, it wouldn't be difficult to have a, uh, you know, uh, 20,000 of them put on charges if you want to. You have to use your sense about this sort of thing, and you take out the biggest villains, and you hope then that you can spread the message further down, and you need forces on the ground, and you need police, you need a whole infrastructure to alleviate this. Now, it isn't as if we're, we're blind about this. We'd lived through the breaking of his promises, of the, his attack on the Kurds. We'd had the first humanitarian intervention in the spring of 1991. We saw what are the problems of trying to hold a, a no-fly zone. You can't do it all from the air, although that can help. There were all sorts of lessons from Bosnia-Herzegovina and the Balkans generally that we had by then learnt, I thought, the generals had learnt, and that we were ready to deal with this sort of situation. Practically none of that experience was used. Now, that is not just negligence. It's gross negligence. Blair should have resigned in, 19, uh, in 2004. Once it was obvious that the thing had failed, the person who took the biggest rap should have been the prime minister instead of going off and trying to pretend to, he could win a general election, which he still didn't really do. And where is responsibility? I mean, he would have been much better in history had he resigned. Carrington was utterly right to resign after the Falklands crisis. Now, we seem to have forgotten uh, how to resign. And I think that there are therefore deep issues here. But this is, this is not minor mistakes. Lots of mistakes are made in war. But not to plan the aftermath in serious detail, not to be ready to reinforce with troops once it started going wrong, not to be ready to acknowledge what was really happening. Blair and Bush were not accepting even the number of people who had been killed. We now know from the Freedom of Information Act uh, that when this article was published in The Lancet by John Hopkins scientists, they were told, Blair was told by the Ministry of Defense that the basis on which they calculated the Iraqi casualties was well-founded and should not be attacked, could not be criticized. It was told by the Foreign Office. Bush and Blair immediately denied it and said that the figures weren't trust. They, even this was 2006. They were in denial even then. Now, I, I, I just think you've got to focus on some of these issues and ask, again, that how can you have a decision-making apparatus? Now, people in the Foreign Office who'd studied this in great care in 1990 and 91, who were ready to come back or were already in office, they knew the complexities of how to deal with this. 
the State Department produced a 4,000-page uh, document, a very detailed analysis of what was going to be named, all brushed aside. We're told, and I've never been able to bottom this out, that the Ministry of Defense, the Chiefs of Staff, asked Blair to raise this question when he flew off to the island in the Atlantic just before the war and challenged Bush on the, uh, non the absence of a serious aftermath planning. Um, short of uh, Eli Lilly or Pfizer coming up with a kind of Prozac equivalent for managing Huber's syndrome, are there uh, institutional uh, or constitutional means of uh, controlling Huber's syndrome or the factors that, that lead to it? Uh, and I say especially within the context in the UK of a highly executive-centred constitution with lots of discretionary power. Um, to what extent are constitutional remedies of sort of self-binding people to prevent what regularly happens when they are in a position of power part of this or is it much more to do with the kind of individual uh, physiology of the particular people that it affects given that it seems to affect people when they get into office is it something to do with hierarchical power structures that suggests we should be careful when people get inside them well, I think the first thing comes to the controls we have in our own country, and the first one is the cabinet. I hope we'll never, ever go through a period of an absence of cabinet government with the British press, commentators, historians, academics, and parliamentarians, by and large, acquiescing in this constitutional outrage. Now, I hope that Gordon Brown really means it when he says he's restored cabinet government. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure, but I hope so. Certainly, I thought when he flew off to see President Bush and he was on the plane and he had his young foreign secretary with him at the top of the plane and he acknowledged his presence and took him with him on the plane, something which has simply ceased since Callaghan. When I went with Callaghan as young foreign secretary in 1977 to see the new President Carter, we traveled together. Small matters, but it's symbolic that you recognize that you need foreign policy advice, that you, even if experienced Prime Minister Callaghan is not just going in there on his own. And I think these are important symptoms to look for. But Cabinet government, we've got to stop this business of endless press statements, endless announcements, all coming from number 10, as if other departments don't exist, as if other Secretaries of State have no authority. I saw this a little bit from the inside, because when I came back to be the EU negotiating in Bosnia, in, in, in former Yugoslavia, the then government were very generous to me in letting me see all the cables connected to this region and I also became almost an honorary member of the EU foreign ministers so I saw what was happening and I was watched decisions being referred to number 10 that I would never refer to number 10 I was just taken as foreign secretary and so there's been a massive accumulation of power and I don't believe it's inevitable and we have to check it anyhow we've got to stop that ever, ever recurring but I mean you know where is academia? Why were there no academic articles? Why wasn't the LSE writing this uh, chapter in this book, except for why was it me who had to write it? You know, and I do think we've got, to start, uh, we've got to start asking a few questions about all these uh, government studies and everything like that. Right in your midst, for 10 years, you had the absence of cabinet government and formally the absence of government from 2001 until Blair left in 2007. So that's one. 
then Parliament needs to ask a few questions. Now, I don't believe in the House of Lords having very much power anyhow, and I don't pretend that it has, but it is a fact that more serious questions were asked about Iraq by former defence chiefs and others in the House of Lords debates than were in the House of Commons. That's another factor. Congress in America needs to look at all these issues as well. And the law, uh, particularly in America, but here, the role of the Attorney General has perhaps been dealt with. But the politicization of the office of Attorney General has been an absolute disgrace. And it didn't happen just on this uh, Blair's watch, but it certainly happened to an extent which we've never seen before. Now, these are just some of the questions. Then Fleet Street should be asking a few questions. Why do they allow themselves all to be manipulated to the extent that they are by the holders of the news? Why is it that we go on doing this? Now, it's not new spin. Politicians have always spun. I've spun. We've all tried to present the information in the best possible way and everything like that. But the public relations departments were civil servant-led. And they had an integrity within the Ministry of Defense, particularly, and the Foreign Office. They are now all part of the civil service. They all came under the command of this uh, guy, Cameron, Campbell. What's his name? Uh, Campbell. And he was a political appointment. The first thing Blair did was give his chief of staff, uh, Jonathan Power, and um, Alistair Campbell, uh, the powers of a civil servant. And they could direct the civil service and yet they were political appointments. A complete and outraged, uh, outrageous decision, which the cabinet secretary opposed, but he didn't resign, nor a butler. He should have resigned. Now, this is an issue which goes right to the elite of this country. We have lost the ability to say, and I can tell you about it from personal experience. Let me just tell you this. Ever since I left the Labour Party in 81, because of the Labour Party's complete reversal of policy on coming out of the European Union without a referendum, on giving up the nuclear weapon, and on wholesale nationalisation of economic policies. I've had to defend myself up and down the bloody country for leaving the Labour Party and forming a new party to do this, as if there was somehow an outrageous thing to do. Now, if you go on having politicians who dare not do that, who lose their political career, and risk their whole political career. If, what's wrong with this country? I've had it in this, not in this hall, but in bigger halls than this, in this, in this uh, place, having to defend myself against charges of traitor. Now, there is something wrong with the body politic in this country that has lost the respect for integrity. And you've got to ask yourself, this is a very deep question. The party political machine is very much stronger than it used to be. When I first went into the House of Commons in 1966, there were a lot of people who were there of independent means. They didn't give a sod for the rapes, and they told them so. And they were not going to be bullied and told what they were going to do. They were independent, freestanding people. Now, perhaps they didn't spend enough time there, and they spent too much time earning barristers' fees and other things. But there was a leavening of experience, and there was a leavening of independence. We're now told you can be an MP at 18, I believe, now. I mean, it's ridiculous. And uh, we need to look at a whole range of issues. The House of Lords, well, you all know perfectly well, they've been packed with party activists. Whether or not they're there because of money they gave, they forget that. It's not an independent body. We all know that. We can see them easily. Now, the sooner it's elected, the better. 
and the sooner it has some substantive powers, the better. They've got the powers there, they just need the courage to use them. Now, there are a whole raft of issues, but they go much deeper. And uh, why are all these academics all linked to the government, paid by the government, in hock to the government? Why are all these think tanks financed by the bloody government? Why are we now going to be told that we have to go and finance these political parties? And I bet you they won't make provision for a new political party to emerge from nothing and build itself up and challenge them and take their part. It wasn't until the Labour Party lost votes on council estates to the SDP in hundreds of votes, thousands of votes, that they really began to realise that they had to change their policies. And they've changed their whole policies, and I'm still having to defend my act of traitor. Now, I mean, I don't mind doing it, as you've probably gathered. I quite enjoy it. <laughs> uh, the gentleman in the violet shirt there. Uh, hello, Lord Oyn. Um, my, my name's uh, Dr. Shara Ali. Um, although I'm not a uh, medical doctor, I'd be pleased to know that um, in my doctoral thesis, I did investigate deception and lying in public life, with particular reference to politicians. Good. You'll remember the uh, infamous remark of uh, Clinton, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. Um, touching on what's just been said, actually, to do with what is the actual uh, causation of this so-called uh, hubris syndrome? Um, I suspect it is much more to do with the institution than the character of the individual who goes into that situation. On your own definition, you made that quite clear, that it doesn't come with the individual so much as the, the office which he um, inhabits, so to speak. So I'm wondering whether there aren't, um, along the lines which you've already been suggesting, some institutional reforms which we might not try and further to combat these kinds of uh, egotistic tendencies which result ultimately in bad decisions being made because yeah. returning to your uh, Bertrand Russell uh, quote um, I guess one of the, the wider issues there is to do with how do we come by reliable cognitive uh, decision making procedures and that has to do with uh, taking counsel from people and listening and also being subject to cross-examination so I'm wondering whether um, one of the ways of combating this as a stroke would be to try and um, get away from the idea of leaders in political parties. Um, indeed, my own uh, political party, the one I vote for, um, does actually uh, not believe in having a single leader, which is, which is the Green Party. And I'm wondering whether that couldn't be another way of trying to address this, this problem. Well, I, I think you've put your finger on many of the substantive questions that need to be asked. Answerability of leaders to their party has greatly diminished it is much harder to get rid of, a, of an existing leader than it used to be. That's a factor that we should look at, all of the major political parties. Secondly, we can't do anything about this, or it's very difficult to do anything about it. The isolation of the leader has greatly increased since all this security. We've moved a long way since Mrs. Attlee got into the family car and drove Clem Attlee in 1945 to kiss hands with the king on taking power. We've gone a long way since I, as an MP, in the late 60s could walk down number 10 Downing Street and knock on the door and walk in without any, as far as I know, anybody knowing I was coming. And your explanation was when you got in through the door. Now, we all know why we can't do some of that. But I, at one stage, had to have personal security. And at one stage, because of the IRA, I had six people around me, which is stultifying, uh, really stultifying, horrendous. 
And a prime minister has this all the time. And it's, it's very, very easy for them to get isolated with the best will in the world and the most, you know. So this is a, something that's happened quite recently and has developed to increase this isolation. It's a very, very worrying thing. I read a, a report on the 2005 election and they said they didn't think that Tony Blair had throughout the whole campaign actually ever met a proper elector. They had met so-called people or the general public, but they were Labour Party people placed in them. And yet, you know, it's not altogether their fault. Part of it, of course, is the political management. They wanted it, but they have to have, uh, or they think they have to have meetings which everybody are by ticket and by invitation only and all this sort of thing. Now, don't underestimate this factor, this isolation factor, which is anyhow there in the institution, as you imply. And the whole deference, the hierarchy, you know, oh, minister, yes, secretary of state, the diplomatic service, uh, you know, boosts you around and follows you a great thing. I always get very worried when foreign secretaries, diplomats say he's a wonderful foreign secretary. With a few exceptions, that usually means they're taking the foreign, foreign office advice. And so there's a real atmosphere that the civil service built around it, which is quite tricky to cope with. But people who cope with this, you know, it's not enough to say, oh, all politicians have hubris. Uh, Attlee didn't have hubris. Uh, Truman didn't have hubris. John Major didn't have hubris. Uh, I don't think Gordon Brown will prove to have hubris. It's, Scots are not in, totally impervious, but much harder to be hubristic as Scott. Now, I speak as a Welshman, of course, it's very easy to be hubristic. <laughs> Uh, we are getting very close to the hour. Um, it is a sign of the, the vibrant critical spirit of LSE that once again there are many, many more questions than time to ask them. I wonder if I could ask the two last people I think we've got time for, gentlemen at the back in glasses and then the lady here in blue, if they could put their questions together fairly swiftly um, and then I fear we will have to cut it there. Yes, Lord Iron, just uh, really this follows on directly from uh, your last remark. Um, you were obviously very much at the centre uh, of affairs when Callaghan made the disastrous decision in autumn 78 to duck an election. Um, we've now had Brown very publicly dithering and obviously lacking the confidence to hold an election. Um, I just wonder with this whole um, philosophy of the hubris, of hubris syndrome with the intoxication of power, I mean, it, it is a a type of personality that reacts completely oppositely to this and is this uh, uh, somewhat um, inelegant way in which Brown has behaved is this a good sign that he won't be um, sucked into the hubris syndrome or is it a bad sign that he's going to be very indecisive and if we take, take the, the next question as well yeah, um, I'm going to take a bit outside of the UK realm um, a hubris syndrome has existed since time immemorial since the beginning of civilization and um, it affects every country every society in the world and I'm just wondering once you've put your next book to bed whether you'd actually advocate for um, some kind of global standards some kind of accountability and transparency and something that doesn't only focus on the person who's suffering from hubris syndrome but the inner circles and the structures around him well um, answer the first question um, and then come back to that. Uh, on the first question, um, I was against Callaghan going to the country in September 78 and told him so. I had a marginal seat and I believed that uh, I might not win it. And if we couldn't win in Devonport, we weren't going to possibly have a majority. So, 
uh, I thought that we had recovered quite well under Callaghan, but that we needed a few more, six months or more. There was a moment, which very few people comment on, that if anybody's interested, look up my autobiography. In, uh, I just happened to be there. I wouldn't have normally been there, but we were dealing with nuclear questions. And uh, we were about to lose the vote on the 5% to the left Tribune group revolt. And we had to decide whether to make it a motion of no confidence. And we decided not to. That was a massive mistake. Callahan should have gone to the wall for the 5%. It was the wrong figure by then, but that didn't matter. It was all psychological, and the Ford agreement could not be allowed to stand. And he should have had an election on it if we'd lost that vote, and he'd have faced down the Labour left. It was a great mistake. And I wish to say, I could say I told him at the time to do so, but I sat on my hands and I gave him my vote. Shouldn't have done that. On the uh, 70 election, I was in favor of it, but I was pretty naive and in jejun in political terms. But I remember sitting around my, uh, having supper in my house with Roy Jenkins, Peter Jenkins, who I've mentioned, the Guardian correspondent, person called Lord Harris, who would advise Gateskill and, and Roy Jenkins on politics, week before the election. And the only subject we discussed throughout the whole meeting was what jobs we were going to have in Wilson government in a week's time. So you've got to be pretty careful about this whole thing. Um, I don't know whether Brown, as I say, will develop hubris, but indecision is not very characteristic of hubris. Um, and I don't think he probably will, but I can't tell, be sure that he won't. And that leads then naturally to your question, since I can't be sure what sort of tests. Well, in the last chapter of the book, I look on sickness overall. The first thing I think is people have got to be honest, and they've got to be forced to be honest about their illnesses. And I do believe that if you stand for public office, you should have an independent medical evaluation of your health, and that should be made public. And it must not be done by your own doctor. We've actually got to pull out the own personal doctor, who does owe a responsibility to the individual patient out of this thing. They shouldn't be signing communiques. If they need public communiques, get somebody else in. Don't put the personal doctor in this appalling dilemma of having to choose between their Hippocratic oath and their loyalty to the patient and their loyalty to the truth. And we all know that when they face this dilemma, more often than not, they choose the patient and not the truth. So I think we've got to look at that whole question, an independent medical examination. But from what I've told you at the moment, I can't put my hand on my heart and say any independent medical evaluation would pick up hubris syndrome. Uh, I, maybe we will eventually get to know much more about it. And we might be able to pick it out. We can pick up types that are needed. And that then relates to the role of how do you bell the cat when they're in power? Because you, they've already passed their medical examinations. They're in power, and they then go wrong on you in power. And this is the best history as the Americans in the 25th Amendment. And what powers do you give to Parliament? Doctors can't get rid of elected politicians, that's for sure. Doctors can be built into the system a bit, but it's got to be a political choice. And in America, it's the vice president who has his power. Now, of course, he's appointed by the president. But you can't politicize it, I don't think, and make somebody else the Speaker of the House of Representatives or something like that. They've looked at all of this. But the 25th Amendment is how to get rid of a president in power who gets crazy. At least the Americans are onto the subject and the importance of it and how to get an analysis of it. And, you know, when you've only got to look superficially at Nixon, 
to realize he was very close to the edge, very, very close to the edge. And who was going to bell that particular cat? It wasn't going to be kissed. And I think that we've got to be very careful about trying to look at how you get procedures whereby you can hold to account somebody in power. And I do address it in my book, but I can't possibly claim to have found the answer, and particularly not to an unidentified possible medical syndrome, hubris syndrome. But just to alert people, to have people talking about it, to have journalists out there wondering in future, has he got hubris syndrome or that's it, maybe a help. And we've got to stop this business of not having any discussions about it and say it's preposterous. I've known people who said to me, it's preposterous that Tony Blair had hubris syndrome. And then I say to them, how often have you talked to him in the last year or two? Never. Well, I mean, when have you seen it on television? Uh, well, you know, have you talked to anybody? We, we think people aren't mad in the rearing, you know, need to be put into an asylum phase. So uh, we've got to look at the brain and how it functions in a much more sophisticated way as we get to know so much more about the brain. And I think this is all I can say. And maybe in this audience there's somebody of the right age who in 25 years will be producing a great piece of work which will explain it all. Thank <laughs> you.